0: 1 Timothy chapter 3, in verse 14, Paul writes, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. Paul has addressed the issue of shepherds, leaders in the church in verses 1 through 13, and now our attention is Drawn to the sheep in the church in verses 14 and 15. And then the Savior in the church. So the chapter goes from shepherds to sheep to the Savior. And he anticipates that he might be delayed. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the passage or with the text, it's about 64 A.D., Paul finds himself in Macedonia, which is in the upper part, just north of Greece, in the areas that we might now call the Baltic states of Yugoslavia and Macedonia. He's writing to Timothy, who happens to be pastoring the church at Calvary Chapel in Ephesus. He's giving him instructions, and he decides that he may be delayed And so he's going to write about the conduct in the church of the Lord Jesus. He's going to write about how we conduct ourselves or behave amongst ourselves in the church. How serious is this subject? Well, again, our attention is drawn to Paul's description of the church. He describes it as the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth and then Christ in that church which is the mystery of godliness and then we're reminded of the church is the in possession of the living god the church becomes the dwelling place of the living god it's been established by god in order to display the truth about god in verse 15 And the church in part, not exclusively or just simply, but part of the purpose of the church is to protect the the, the truth, acknowledge the truth. And there's no greater proof of the possession of God's truth than the possession of God's son. And for those of you who've been following along when we were... ...teaching through the book of 1 John, you'll remember that this is the way John actually defines what it means to be born again... ...or a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. That you have the Son. If you are in possession of the Son, then you're in possession of the Father. And so Paul is going to provide a summary of the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus in six simple statements... Jesus appeared in the body in verse 16. He was vindicated by the spirit in verse 16. He was seen by angels in verse 16. He was announced to the nations in verse 16. He was believed on in the world in verse 16. And then he was taken up into heaven in verse 16. So in these three verses is jam-packed, an incredible amount of information. We begin with conduct in the church or behavior in the church. In verse 14, these things I write to you. By the way, this will be only the second time in the epistle that Paul will draw attention to himself. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself. Like I said, he's in Macedonia writing to Timothy in Ephesus. He hopes to visit Ephesus soon. He sent the letter ahead of himself. And it's my understanding that he hopes to get there shortly after the letter arrives. But he doesn't know for sure. And this is why he's decided to spell out in greater detail how Christian believers ought to behave towards one another. But again, it should prompt a question for the careful Bible student. You should be able to ask, well, was he delayed? Did he ever make it back? Were Paul and Timothy ever reunited? And you know what the answer is? We don't know the answer. We don't know whether Paul rejoined Timothy in Ephesus. But it should give you pause right at this very moment. Because some of you are anticipating that you get to do stuff. That you'll get to be with someone or be reconciled to someone. Reunited with someone. You're hoping that that's the case. But we know absolutely that the only day that's been entrusted to you is today. The only one that we can count on in order to honor him and love him and serve him. So was he delayed? We actually don't know the answer to that. We don't know whether he ever rejoins Timothy in Ephesus, but we have very good reason to believe that Paul is going to eventually make his way back to Rome. It's 64 AD, Nero is about to die, The Jewish revolt will begin in 66 A.D. The Jewish temple will be destroyed by 70 A.D. And the whole world will be fundamentally different. In one sense, the purpose of these pastoral epistles isn't simply to know the truth about Jesus, but again, Paul is writing it not just so that you will have correct information, but that you will also know how to behave in relationship in the church. That expression, conduct yourself, is a very long Greek word, which I'm not about to pronounce at this point. It has a prefix and a root word and a suffix word. If you ever do puzzles, this is about a 16-letter word. That one 16-letter Greek word translates the simple word conduct. But in the, in the original language, it's a reference to how you walk, how you behave. It actually is a word that encompasses All of the ways that you relate to one another. And the way that I would put it is this. The way that we are to relate to God, the way that we're to relate to believers in the church, the way that we're to relate to the unbeliever outside of the church. Much of the New Testament is devoted to that big subject. And remember, the church was plagued by false teachers and false doctrine. And Paul knows that a healthy church with healthy believers, it's going to require not just simply the right information, It's going to require the right information that informs the way that we behave towards one another. And by the way, when he says these things, these things I write to you. The way that the the passage is constructed. It could mean everything that Paul has written up to this point in chapter 1 and chapter 2. It also could mean everything that he is going to write for the remainder of the letter. And that's the way that I choose to think that he's talking about. These things is everything that he's written in chapter 1 and chapter 2, everything that he's written in chapter 3, and everything that he's going to write in chapter 4 and 5 and 6. So, he goes from the conduct of the believer in the church to the character of the church. He's going to connect his thoughts in just a moment. He says, in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. In that simple phrase, he's going to use three descriptors to describe the church. He's going to use the phrase, the house of God. In that culture, in that society, when you would make a reference to an extended family, you would use the term oikos, which is the household. It wasn't just a reference to where you lived or or your address. It was a phrase in the context that almost certainly means household. And so the NIV actually translates it that way. So when he says, in the house of God, he's not talking about a building. This is a reference to a family that comes together under one roof, sharing one life. So in that simple descriptor, we discover that the church of Jesus is like a family, Throughout the New Testament, you're going to see the church likened to a building. It's going to be likened to a body. But here he likens it to a family. And again, our focus as a family is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what's interesting. Our focus is on the God of the Bible and the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the church is a family of people who both believe in the savior and trust the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the church consists of born again believers, those who are who have committed their lives to Christ and and their lives are based on what you have learned concerning the promises of God that are given in the Bible. And so in the simplest terms possible, we're a family. And so that's why In the Christian community, you'll hear people refer to each other as brothers and sisters. And that might seem awkward to maybe some of you, where that that kind of word is a word of familial intimacy. You You don't even like to call your own family brother and sister, let alone people that you've never met, but there is a sense of relationship and intimacy. So, in the simplest terms, we're a family. Brothers and sisters, committed to obeying our Heavenly Father. We love the Father. We obey the Father. We learn from the Son. We love the Father, obey the Father. We love the Son and learn from the Son. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 50, you'll remember that Jesus said, For whosoever shall do the will of my father, which is in heaven, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother, he says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 50. And so again, Jesus uses these intimate terms. Paul will give some brief descriptors, which are by no means exhaustive, but again is going to provide us plenty to think about. The church, he calls it Of the living God, a pillar and ground of the the truth. By the way, the word translated church translates that very, very well known word in the Greek language, ekklesia. Ekklesia was a word that was used again in the ancient culture to describe an assembly, a company, a gathering. It comes from two Greek root words, a prefix and a root word, ekklesia. Ekklesia means to call out or to call out from among the crowd. And so it came to sort of be understood as called by the living God. So the Lord isn't the product of people's imaginations or the conjured images of people who desperately want to believe that there is such a thing as God. The Bible says exactly the opposite. We didn't fabricate and create God. God fabricated and created you. God doesn't exist because you call out to him in a a, a way of wishful thinking, fabricating an idea of a God who may or may not be there, but rather the Bible says exactly the opposite, that God formed you and fashioned you, that he created you, and then he called you, and then he called you into an assembly. And there's a reason why I think Paul uses the term the living God. He's contrasting that, with the foolish, thoughtless ideas of the world in which the people in Ephesus who were living, who still embraced the idea of idolatry, man-made gods and goddesses. And so, he's the living God. But whenever you hear that term, the living God, you should be thinking, the living God who's vitally concerned about his people. He's not the sleeping God or the unconscious God or the distant God or the God who's not really there. And so he's the living God who's vitally concerned with his people. And because he's alive, he can speak to the human heart. And so Paul when he wrote to the Thessalonians where he happened to be in Macedonia in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 9 and 10, he wrote, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come in that very simple sentence that he actually wrote to the the Thessalonians that he's describing God everywhere he goes to every audience in exactly the same way. And by the way, the New Testament term ecclesia is used in at least four different ways in the New Testament. The term is used to describe a secular assembly. The freemen of Ephesus gathered together for civil business in Acts chapter 19, verse 32. And so when Luke is writing that particular passage, he speaks of a group of people who have gathered together in order to conduct business. The second way that it's used in the New Testament is when Stephen uses the term to equate Israel in the wilderness wanderings as a called out assembly. In Acts chapter 7, verse 38, which is sometimes even translated church. And then number three, it's used in terms of the local church. That is a group of believers who gather for in a specific place with an organization of leadership of elders and pastors and deacons to teach and edify and exhort and worship and perpetuate the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper and propagate the gospel. So in order to understand the meaning of the word, you have to go to the context. And number four, it's a reference to the church universal. All believers who are born again by the Holy Spirit from the moment of the day of Pentecost to the return of the Lord Jesus in heaven and so it could also be a reference not only to the local church but the church universal and Jesus predicted that he would build his ecclesia his church upon his redemptive death his glorious resurrection in Matthew 16:18 so the church is called a building the church is called a body The church is called a family. But in all of those instances, it's a description of a spiritual union of a group of people to a very real God. And so, that's who we are the church, saved by grace, washed in the blood. In the sacrifice of Jesus, carefully assigned a position in the church. And so for the person who says, I don't really need the church. That betrays a misunderstanding of what the church is. It also betrays a misunderstanding of who you are. You see, you can't have a church without a believing body. So... The church is a family. The church is a family with a living father. The church is a family with a living father. And the church is a family with a living father who supports the truth. And so Paul will use that image of a pillar. And then a fortified embankment. And so the picture is the church props and supports the truth. By the way, you know it's one of the worst things you can do with a pillar? Try to hide it. Pillars, by their very nature, are there. You can see pillars. If, if you go to Israel or you go to Ephesus or you go to the Parthenon, you look at a pillar and it screams majesty. It screams support and stability. Now, again, you don't hide pillars. Whether they're short or whether they're big, whether they're massive or manageable, they speak of support. But you know what else is cool about pillars? You're drawn to them. There's something about a pillar that you're drawn to. And since the church is a pillar, it's not simply to draw attention to itself, but to draw attention to the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. The church, the family of God, the company of the saints, their job is to proclaim the truth to the world. And again, we keep using that term truth over and over again. And what truth is that? And the truth is the truth about Jesus, the truth about the incarnation, the truth that God sent him. And so when Paul uses the word the pillar And the ground, again, he's using a Greek word which means to support or reinforce. It's a word that describes a bulwark. Uh, Think of a massive edifice. Think think of it like a, a massive wall that exists to fortify and protect a building. And then you get the idea. So this is something that was meant to protect And defend the truth. So the church doesn't invent the truth. And this becomes maybe one of the most important things I hope you remember that I'm going to tell you tonight. The truth doesn't, the church doesn't invent the truth. We don't make stuff up. Like some churches. Um, Imagine a church that says, Well, you know what? We know that the Bible says this, but wait, there's more. But guess what? The church doesn't exist to fabricate truth, invent truth, or add to the truth, but rather... The church is the custodian of the truth and the protector of the truth. Some people suggest that the church is more important than the truth that's entrusted to it. Now, I think a reasonable argument could be made that the church is important, and of course it is, as the bride of Christ and something that Jesus himself has invented. But I need to tell you something, and I hope you get it. The truth exists even in an apostate church or a corrupt church or one that has abandoned the truth. In other words, the church doesn't make truth possible. Truth makes the church possible. And so, the church isn't the source of truth. Jesus is the source of the truth. And so the church was expected to believe the truth to trust the truth and to act on the truth now again when you start tying these pictures together and you remember that in the old testament the lord dwelt in a tabernacle the lord dwelt in the temple you'll remember that when the children of israel are being led out of egypt that there is a pillar a cloud if you will by day and a pillar of light by night that that, G, that 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 the lord accompanies his people the lord was said to dwell amongst his people and so the lord dwells amongst his people in the presence of the believer in the congregation of the assembly of the church And so I think that this is the reason why now we connect verse 14 and and verse 15 to verse 16, Christ and the church, because then you have this amazing, majestic statement that's made in, in verse 16, and it says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. This passage points to the source of truth that we believe and the source of power to live our lives in Jesus and for Jesus because in a moment, we're gonna connect the dots because look what Paul is saying. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Well, what is that? What is the mystery of godliness? We know that earlier in the passage, Paul talked about the mystery of faith. This is the only reference in the Bible to this particular phrase. Paul says that it's without controversy. Whatever it is, and we're going to get to that in just a moment, whatever it is, It's not something that you argue about. It isn't something that you debate. It isn't something that you dispute. It isn't something that you neglect. It isn't something that you deny. It isn't something that you ignore. Whatever this is, it's something that is supposed to be so powerful and so fundamental and so essential that everyone has to agree to it. And again, the mystery of godliness also seems to include the idea that in the heart of the gospel, that the key to godliness... That our belief and our behavior are linked together, that the secret of being godly, the secret of pleasing God, the secret of being godly and pleasing God is to again have Jesus in your life and give Jesus the preeminence. I've told you, over the past several weeks that the secret to having a godly life is to magnify the Lord, it's to mortify the flesh, it's to simplify your life. That becomes the core if you will. And so to the godly Christ is the mystery revealed. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 through 14, Paul talks about this in the most remarkable way. If you go to Second Corinthians chapter two, in verse seven, this is what it says. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive. Actually, it's first Corinthians. I wrote I wrote it down wrong in my Note, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 through 14, where it says, "...but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages of our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for for had they known, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory." But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit, for the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak not in words with man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. Comparing spiritual with spiritual, but the natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God. For they're foolishness to him, for, nor can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. So when Paul's talking about this and he refers to it as a great mystery... Not just a mystery, but a great mystery. It seems to indicate how profound, how significant, how overwhelmingly important this is. And I'm going to try and boil it down to something very simple. We can't please God on our own. We can't please God apart from Jesus. We can't live godly lives unless we're living our life in Christ, informed by Jesus. Jesus gives us the power to do what is right, it's possible to live. A godly life by believing and loving, receiving and walking in Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul provides six simple statements revealed to all of mankind. And this becomes, again, one of the important things to just simply say. That we accept as true. Some scholars believe that, again, that this might have been a hymn that was sung in the early congregations of the early church, that it was an early creedal confession, that that Paul literally breaks out into a song. When we were in Calvary and Albuquerque, and Mike Montgomery is here, and he will remember that we had... George Sanchez come and he spoke to the church. And George Sanchez was this wonderful man who loved the Lord. He served as the Spanish-speaking interpreter for Billy Graham when he was preaching at a crusade in Ecuador. So he has this wonderful, booming voice and he would preach the gospel and he would have a Bible study and then he would come to a particular point in the Bible study and he would break out into a song. He would just start singing a song. And it was great. And I'm going to suggest to you that that's exactly what Paul does right at this very moment. He just starts to sing this song. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. And so how are we to think about this song and this mystery of godliness and what it is in fact saying? God was manifested in the flesh. Jesus appears in a body. By the way, the oldest manuscripts that we have available read He who was manifest in the flesh. The Greek language reads Hos, H O S. And then this was later changed to Theos. In other words, Hos. Someone added a TH to it. The King James reads, God was manifest in the flesh. Well, does this mean that there's two different ideas being spoken of here? Does this present a problem? In other words, is there some dispute on whether or not God was made known? Did God become a human being? Did God take on a second nature? Or as the cults say, well, this isn't a reference to God. It clearly is a reference to God. Whether it's Hoss or Theos, the subject of the of the conversation in the song is Jesus. God becomes a man. He becomes a human being. And the very fact that God assumes another nature, a human nature. He does so in order that he can be made known. And this is exactly what John says in the opening verses of John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the same was in the beginning with God, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. This is why Christians believe that Jesus is God. There's not three gods or two gods or nine gods. There's one singular God. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus, assumes a new nature, a human nature. Scholars and theologians call this the incarnation. I had the privilege of having Oz Guinness on the program. He's written over 50 books he writes, quote, the fact is that the greatest mystery of all, the incarnation, Os Guinness writes, comes at the very beginning and is the central reason why we believe in God. We cannot explain it. There is the beginning of the mystery of faith. But because of the evidence, neither can we explain it away. There is the beginning of the rationality of faith. And the reason why I bring this up is because we don't simply believe this by faith, even though we do believe it by faith. But what Oz is saying and what Paul is saying is that the fact that God became a human being isn't just simply a matter of religious preference. It's a matter of historical fact. One of the early church fathers, Gregory of Nazinius, spells out the mystery. He says, quote, the self-existent comes into being. The uncreate is created. That which cannot be contained is contained. And so it's okay for people to ask the question, how is that even possible? How can the uncreated creator, how can the self-existent God, how can the Lord of the universe confine himself into a simple tabernacle of flesh. You probably have friends who say, you can't put God in a box. Except for when God puts himself in a box called the Ark of the Covenant, or he puts himself in a box, a a body, a human body. The living God becomes a man. He acquires a second nature. He becomes a human being, a real human being with flesh and blood. And in his humanity, he participates in everything that it means to be human. He suffers. He experiences trial. The writer of Hebrews says, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren that he might be merciful and a faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people for in that he himself suffered being tested he is also able to secure comfort or to provide comfort for those also who are tempted or tested. In Hebrews chapter 2 verse 6 and so the writer of Hebrews basically says this is the way that it had to be in order for God to forgive your sin and reconcile you to himself. So how important is the the incarnation? How important is the virgin birth? How important is it to believe that God became a human being? Remember what Paul has already said. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Well, I want to argue about it and debate it. Of course you do. But it's not going to make it any less real. According to the Bible, Jesus took on a human nature to take away sins. To destroy the power of death. That is, to make sure that you would come back to life. To make sure that Satan doesn't have the final word in your life. But that Jesus gets to have the final word in your life. Again, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 14 says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lives subject to bondage. In other words, the writer of Hebrews is saying that God became a man and lived the perfect life So that he could die for your sins, that he could destroy the work of the devil, and that he could defeat death for you. And so the next thing that he says is justified in the spirit. What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus was justified or vindicated in the spirit? Well, part of the meaning is that when the Lord Jesus was on the earth, he spoke the truth. He came to, to, to the earth. Remember, he said to the religious leaders, my father sent me. He sent me to talk to you about the truth. The father sent me. You say that he's your God. My father sent me to you with a message. And the message is that if you'll repent of your sin, that you'll turn to him and you'll trust him, he'll save you. And remember what Elsa's message was? God sent me. God sent me for a purpose to love you and forgive you and to reconcile you. And what was their response by and large? We don't believe you. We know we're Jews. We know that God promised a savior. We, we know that he promised a Messiah. We know all of that. But we don't think you're him. They didn't receive him. The Bible says he came into his own. His own received him not. So not only did they not receive him. And not only did they not just simply disagree with him. They threatened him. And then they decided to arrest him. And then they decided to kill him. But the Spirit of God brought him back to life. That's the point that Paul is making. The Spirit of God ensured that Jesus would live a sinless and a holy life. The Spirit of God vindicated Jesus by giving him the power to perform miracles and display the mighty works of God. The Spirit of God vindicated Jesus by raising him from the dead. And so the resurrection from the dead, Paul is arguing and the song is singing, is proof positive that God didn't make a mistake and that Jesus is exactly who he said. He is. The Spirit of God vindicated Jesus by raising him from the dead, and he's declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of Holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, it says, For Christ also has suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, he quickened, that means made alive by the Spirit, In Acts chapter 2 verse 32 it says this Jesus God raised up and that all of us are witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God having received from the father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He's poured out on you that you both see and hear it says in Acts chapter 2 verse 32 and 33 Peter argues that God raises Jesus from the dead and the Holy Spirit has come and has been poured out on people because God's promises are true. So God became a human being. God raised Jesus from the dead. He was seen by angels. What in the world does that mean? Well, the earthly ministry of Jesus was accompanied by spirit beings. What I call interdimensional beings beings that have the ability to be where God is and where we are, we call them angels. These angelic, supernatural spirit beings created by God to carry out God's will. Angels were seen in preparation for Christ's birth and at his birth in Luke chapter one, verse 26. Angels were present at the temptation of Jesus in Mark chapter one, verse 12. Angels were present at his trials in Gethsemane in Luke twenty-two forty-three. 43. At his resurrection in Matthew 28, 2. When, when he ascends into heaven, remember the people in, <laughs> on the Mount of Olives, they're looking up as they're seeing Jesus head off into the sky. And an angel says, men of, of Israel, why do you stand staring into the sky? This same Jesus who was taken up from you will return in exactly the same way. It's their way of saying angels witnessed the earthly life of Jesus from beginning to end. And the early church would reflect on that fact about how the whole drama of redemption was witnessed by angels. And then preached among the Gentiles. The Lord Jesus was preached in the nations. The word Gentiles is the Greek word ethnos, it's actually not that specific word, but it's a root word of that, which means the nations, And I'm reminded of what it says in Romans chapter 15. It says, when Paul was preaching, he says, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Illyricum, I fully preach the gospel of Christ. And so I've made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Jesus was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. But as it is written to whom he was not announced, then he will see. And those who have not heard, they will understand. Paul relates his own journey, how on foot he walks from Jerusalem. He makes his way north. North to Turkey, he crosses the Hellespont, he goes to Macedonia and Philippi and Corinth, he goes back north into that area that's called Albania. Without a bus, without a taxi, with only his two feet, he walks 1,500 miles preaching to anyone who's willing to listen that a real God has sent a real Savior and that he's come back to life and that he can change your life. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 verse 23, this is the gospel that you heard. And that's been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying that this preaching among the Gentiles is that he goes to the people of of Pontus and, and Bithynia and Macedonia and Thessalonica and Rome. That wherever he goes and whoever he preaches to, Jew, Gentile, Greek, free, slave. They hear the gospel and they respond because that's the next sentence, believed on in the world. This is the reason Jesus comes to the world, so that the world by believing could be saved. And after the painful death of Jesus and the glorious resurrection from the dead, a small group of believers are witnesses, eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians 15 and says, even some 30 years later, that of the 500 people who literally witnessed the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, most of them are still alive. And, and so he talked about turning from sin and repenting and trusting Jesus because of the simple sentence that Jesus told a religious Jew For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. And in John 5, 24, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life, will not come into judgment, has passed from death into life. And so the gospel is believed. And by the way, in that simple sentence is a chronology. God was manifested in the flesh, the incarnation, justified in the spirit, raised from the dead, seen by angels throughout his earthly ministry. After his resurrection and ascension, he was preached among the Gentiles, believed up in the world, received up into glory. And by the way, what is that a reference to? I think you all know it's the ascension of Jesus into heaven. This is something that the theologians call the exaltation of Jesus, that he's the supreme majesty in the universe. This is what Paul had in mind when he writes to the Philippians and he says, you know it. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, whether in heaven or on the earth, that Jesus Christ is the Lord of all to the glory of God the Father. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 through 10, in Mark 16, 19, we read, So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven, and he sat down on the right hand of God, it says in Mark chapter. Sixteen, verse nineteen. Paul, reflecting on that truth, writes in Ephesians four ten: He who descended is also the one who ascended above the heavens, that he might fill all things and so in Paul's majestic mind he begins to think of all of the implications because Jesus is risen from the dead ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the father that everything ev- all of reality finds its reality In the exaltation of Jesus, where he is currently seated, where he is at the right hand of the Father, that at this very moment, he is in the place that's been established by God. And now we begin to understand the mystery of godliness, because the mystery of godliness is, if you will understand the mystery of godliness and believe the mystery of godliness, the identity of Jesus and who he is, then guess what? Your life will be different. So we love the church. The church exists in, in part So that we have an expression of love for the Father and the Son and each other. We exist to glorify God through praise and prayer, by the bearing of fruit, by giving, by acknowledging God's Son, believing God's word. Through our suffering, through our witnessing, we baptize believers, we instruct believers, we edify believers, we discipline believers, we provide fellowship for believers. And so you know what this means? There's no such thing as a seeker church. Seeker churches do not exist. The very nature of the church requires that the church be composed of people who actually believe. Does that mean that unbelievers are welcome? Of course they are. But do we change the truth to accommodate the unbeliever? Or do we proclaim the truth and invite them to receive the truth? Oddly enough, there really is no such thing as a seeker truth church because a congregation of people who are looking for God doesn't really fit the criteria of what constitutes a church so what do we do we remind ourselves of what Paul is reminding us the basis of our fellowship Jesus the nature of our fellowship we share with one another The responsibilities of our fellowship? We confess our sins to each other. We rebuke sin in one another. We forgive one another. We bear one another's burdens. We gently restore each other. We admonish one another. We pray for one another. We support one another. There's an old hymn by Charles H. Marsh. It was revived for a new generation. The song goes, living he loved me, dying he saved me, buried he carried my sin far away, rising he justified freely forever, one day he's coming, oh glorious day. This is how that song must have been sung. Living, he loves me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justifies freely forever. One day, he's coming. Do you know what all of this is doing? It's inviting you to believe it. Not just in your mind but with your whole life so that every single decision that you make and direction that you determine is going to be informed by what Jesus has done for you. So now you begin to understand just a little bit better how doctrine is what creates the mechanism of how we relate to one another and how we talk to one another and how we pray for one another and how we minister to one another. We do this because of what we believe about Jesus and what Jesus has said about you. Isn't that interesting? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that... um, that we don't have to invent any of this, that the church didn't make up the incarnation, that the church didn't fabricate a story about a slain Jesus, that the church didn't manufacture an angelic testimony and then make up a story in the hopes that people would believe it Lord, we know better. We know that broken people, empty people, hurt people need a savior. They need a Jesus, the real Jesus, the Jesus of the New Testament. Who can literally cleanse the heart and change the heart and forever, ever provide hope and power to live a different kind of a life. And so again, Father, we thank you for the gospel and we thank you for Jesus and we thank you for life and we thank you for the opportunity to be able to share this gospel with anyone who's willing to believe it, knowing that lives can be changed. In Jesus' name, amen.